When people ask me, how did you survive? I leave out a small thing, which isn't really a small thing. Any survivor who has a heart and brains lives with guilt that they survived and others didn't. My mother was sent straight to the gas chamber. My father was beaten to death. My sister Martha was murdered. My brothers Willie and Martin and Louie were murdered. And here I am, and they're all dead. Why them and not me? It was as if God had his hand on my shoulder to lead and guide me when I was all alone and in mortal danger. I remember everything since I was three and a half years old. I can tell you the color of the stripes on my mother's sweater from when I was a little boy. It's good and bad, such a memory, because everything stays with you and you can't shut it off. I remember where we went fishing as boys, but I also remember what the barracks looked like in Auschwitz, and the capo with a stick in his hand, and everything he did. And that memory is very, very bad. It never goes away. He reached down and rolled up the leg of his pants. Look, see? Since the day of my liberation, I wear two pairs of socks. For the past 50 years, I've never left the house without two pairs of socks. That and a safety pin. Two pairs of socks because in the camps, a pair of socks could make the difference between living and dying. The deficiency of the body, the dirt, the filth, from a splinter, you would develop rotting flesh. One splinter from a wooden shoe, and you would die. And why a safety pin? A little pin could save your life in the camps if you need to hold up a piece of cloth as a bandage around your leg or keep your pants up. How did I remain alive for almost two years in Auschwitz? It wasn't by education. I didn't have any. It was the hand of the Almighty. I'm going to tell you something that I don't think I've ever said. As terrible as it sounds, I don't think I could live without the nightmares. It gives me a very ultra-realistic difference between life and death. It shows me what life is now, and I would never give that up. Never. 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 That was an excerpt from the book that I'm going to talk to you about today, which is Unstoppable, Siggy Wilzig's Astonishing Journey from Auschwitz Survivor and Penniless Immigrant to Wall Street Legend, and it was written by Joshua M. Green. This story is unbelievable. Wait till you learn what Ziggy had to go through and endure and then what he was able to accomplish after the fact. I'm going to jump right into the book. The book starts when he's 21 years old. The year is 1947. He's arriving for the first time in America, and he's about to be reunited with one of his sisters. And so they're pulling into a port in New York City. It says, 21-year-old Ziggy had been nauseous, vomiting, and losing weight for most of the two-week ocean journey. Hearing the cheers, he climbed weakly to the top deck and took a deep breath. The fresh air was a relief after the bad smells of so many people cramped together on the deck below. Nearly all Jews deported to Auschwitz died within four months of arrival. But here he was, alive and in America, after having spent nearly two years in that concentration camp. So he's about to meet his sister Jenny, who escaped about a decade before um, the, the, the time that Ziggy arrives in, in America. And so I want to tell you a little bit about how, why Ziggy was actually helped save her life as just a young kid. Um, so the family was, was being persecuted in this small town in Germany. They have to flee that town. They wind up in Berlin in 1936. You could not have had worse timing. And so uh, as a little boy, he's realizing, hey, there's a lot of people fleeing. And he says, by listening in on the conversations in cafes, he learned that some people were managing to escape Europe by securing exit visas. Ziggy visited a dozen consulates looking for back entrances and open windows in his mission to steal the necessary documents. And so this is taking place 11 years before he's going to meet this sister that he's about to steal these documents so she can escape in uh, New York. 
Uh, so it says Ziggy risked his life scaling embassy walls, breaking into offices, and gathering up rubber stamps. With the stolen tools, he forged three visas. And so at first, he offers these visas to his, his parents, two, two of these visas to his parents. Um, his mother says, no, I'm not going anywhere. I was born here, and I will die here. She didn't know how prophetic that statement was because in, let's see, seven years from now, they're going to be sent to Auschwitz. She's killed immediately. And then uh, a few weeks later, his father is beaten to death. And so he dies in Auschwitz as well. So it says, um, she declined, I was born here, and I will die here. Uh, so Siggy gave her visa to his older brother, Joe, uh, who had already been a prisoner in a concentration camp. So this is well before uh, they get uh, sent to Auschwitz, but managed to get release. Uh, Siggy figured Joe was already a marked man and needed to get out of Germany quickly. His sister Jenny was pregnant, and Siggy insisted that she and her husband uh, except the two remaining visas. So those are the, the three visas they were able to escape. Uh, it says Jenny and Joe left Germany. Uh, they first traveled to, they left Germany, uh, were able to emigrate to Shanghai and China. Then from Shanghai, they made their way for, to the Dominican Republic. And then from Dominican Republic, they were able to get into America. And so it was very common during this time. They hadn't had any way of speaking. Ziggy had no idea like what, what was going on in, in Jenny's life. They wound up meeting on the docks in New York City. So the, the book starts with him as a 21-year-old landing in America, flat broke. He's got like 200 bucks in his pocket. And then from there, he builds this what's going to wind up being a multiple $100 million uh, business empire. But it's uh, that's the first chapter. That's where the first chapter ends. And then it goes back in time. And it talks about his time in Auschwitz and everything he has to go through to get back to this point. Um, so he's winding meeting Jenny, uh, before I get to Auschwitz though, I want to fill you in cause this was just gives you an, uh, an understanding of just how insane and brutal the experiences that this guy had to go through. So he's meeting, remember when he, he gave her the visa, she's pregnant, they escape. He hasn't seen her since then. So it says, uh, Jenny told Siggy the tragic news that her five-year-old daughter, the one she was pregnant with, had died of smallpox in Shanghai before the journey to the Dominican Republic. Siggy remembered watching hundreds of children die, forced into gas chambers, their dead bodies later thrown into the crematorium fires, and made a mental inventory of his family. He was alive. Jenny and her husband were alive. Their brothers Joe and Irwin had survived. Everyone else was gone. He would calculate that 59 members of his, of his family had perished. So through there's this Jewish refugee uh, charity organization in America at the time providing all these refugees. It's like a, t a tiny little apartment. And so it says the arrivals were escorted into their rooms, Siggy being one of these people. For many, it was the first time in years that they held a key to their own quarters. What now, he wondered. He had nothing. No resources and no credentials. He spoke with a thick German accent, had only a grade school education, and years of torture and starvation were still fresh in his mind. Yet here he was, still breathing, staring out the window at the snow-covered New York, New York streets. The $200 in his pocket would soon disappear if he didn't find work. It was clear, and so this is what Ziggy's realizing, it was clear that Americans were alive in every sense of the word. World, word, rather, excuse me, moving purposely, purposefully towards some vision of tomorrow. He liked that. He would do that too. Grasp opportunities and not allow the darkness of the past to rob him of a bright future. His job was to grab whatever scraps remained from the rubble of his life and cobble them back together into an edifice of a yet-to-be-determined size and shape. Okay, so now we go back in time. We go to early 1930s Germany, what it was like to be Jewish at this, at this point. Um, we're going to see that even from the age of 14, he was working over 70 hours a week uh, in forced labor. This is before he sent to Auschwitz. And it says, by 1936, Jewish children were no longer allowed to attend school. And, Sig and Siggy's uh, schooling came to an abrupt end. Jewish businesses were taken over and Jewish men were sent to work in forced labor factories. 
So by the time he's 16, he's already been working in some of these factories for quite a while. It says in 1943, 16-year-old Ziggy was in the middle of his night shift at a lamp factory when an officer walked in and arrested him. For the past two years, he'd been working 12-hour shifts six days a week. And so this scene that's happening now where he's being arrested, his entire uh, family and everybody that lives in their building and their neighborhood are pulled out. Uh, a few weeks ago, I read the, the, um, the, uh, the biography of Steven Spielberg. And Spielberg's foundation, the, he started a foundation to document when he was doing the movie Schindler's List. He was uh, sort of a foundation to document all of like the, the, the uh, Holocaust survivors' memories. And so Spielberg's actually in this book at the end because that foundation interviews and documents everything that, that Siggy, right before Siggy dies, because Siggy di- uh, gets diagnosed with uh, stage 4 blood cancer. And so before he dies, he winds up spending 10 or 20 hours just just interviewing with Steven Spielberg's foundation and just reliving all of the the memories and everything he had. But the reason I bring that up to you is because I when I re, when I read his biography, Spielberg's biography a few weeks ago, I also rewatched Schindler's List. And there's a scene in that movie which is almost exactly what the scene in, where I'm at in the book is. So it says uh, they pull everybody out of the building, saying, you know, hey, grab your stuff. We're, they're not telling them where you're going. Bring all your supplies. And so you see that when they get to Auschwitz. In the movie, they have like all the, like all the boots go in a big pile, all of the suitcases go in a big pile. Like the 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 Nazis are, are taking all the jewelry and robbing them, and so it says in one of the crowds awaiting deportation, Siggy saw his father and his mother standing with his older brother, uh, his older sister, her husband, and their seven year old son. Uh, Siggy's other brothers were also were also there. These are the ones that that get mur- murdered. Everyone held suitcases and bags of food. In the distance, he saw a girl, a little girl around his age, or a little younger than him, rather. In the distance, he saw a girl in, the dark, in a dark green overcoat, looking alone and lost. He hurried over to the girl in the dark green coat. She came from a poor family like his, and all she wanted was to hold his hand. I don't care what happens to me now, the girl whispered to him. She, and then this is what he's saying. Um, this is what Ziggy says about that. She didn't know where her family was. She had no one, and she knew I wouldn't leave her. So in Schindler's List, there's that girl in the red coat that's famous because it's all black and white. And then you see her walk as, as the scenes are occurring, and she's in the red coat. In Siggy's scene, she's in a green coat. So they're, they're ushered onto trains real quick. And he says, unless you were there, you can't imagine how horrifying a nightmare it was. Uh, so they, the, the train stops. They get out. Siggy overheard other, pris- other prisoners say the name of this place, Auschwitz. So everybody's separated. He doesn't know where his mom and dad are. He does not know uh, where his siblings are. Uh, so a guard comes up to him. A, a guard uh, came up to him. How old are you? He snapped. 18, Ziggy lied. What profession? Master toolmaker. He lied again. The guard pushed Ziggy onto a line of prisoners on the left, then pushed the girl in the green coat to, the, to a line on the right. Ziggy did not know that the, that the line on the right was for prisoners selected to be killed. And that almost all children under 18 who were sent to the right, ugh, along with the younger children, the elderly, and the sick. Nor did he know that anyone without useful skills was also sent to the right to be killed. Where did, and this is, this is so, there's going to be a couple paragraphs like this one in the book, where he, he's talking, like I just said at the opening, like he, the survivor's guilt. Like 59 members of my family perished. Why was I not one of them? And so he says, where did the impulse come from to lie, claiming that he was 18 and a master toolmaker? True, he did have some toolmaking training in trade school, but he never completed his schooling and never worked a day in his life as a toolmaker. The mystery of that impulse, which surely saved him from the gas chamber, would plague him for the rest of his life. And then there's just so many paragraphs like this one. I mean, 
it's just like very similar to again the parallel because it's fresh in my mind just rewatching it is uh, Schindler's List. It says uh, Siggy again scanned the line to the right and caught a glimpse of the girl in the dark green overcoat, as if seeing her for the first time. He thought she looked so young, so innocent. He watched snow fall on the loading platform as guards marched her off with the others. A moment later, she was gone. And then we have this this in this testimony he's giving later in life. Where he says, as a Jew growing up in Germany in those years, Siggy said, you expected to be beaten and mistreated. But a gas chamber? A crematorium? Now that you didn't expect. The stench and the smoke from the chimneys. And what they did to the children. What they did to the children. I can still hear the screaming of children who were ripped away from their parents. The memories don't stop. To this day, I argue with the Almighty that if cries of children, he's saying this, 50 years after it happened. Wait till I get to some of the memories he has at the end of the book when he's dying in the hospital. It's just, I, I don't know if I've ever read a, read a book like this. Uh, the memories don't stop to this day. I argue with the Almighty that if the cries of children would leave my ears, I would go more often to the synagogue. Flames shooting up from the crematorium. The horrible smell. The horrible smell. It was unbelievable. So in addition to reading this book, I was also watching documentaries on the Third Reich and concentration camps. And I was on the phone with a friend right before I sat down to talk to you. And I said I was that the, the impact that this book had on me. I woke up knowing I was going to record today. And I, was, I just have I told I told a friend of mine, I, just, I have nothing to complain about. Like I'm healthy. I have a roof over my head. I have air conditioning, heating, cooling. I have an espresso machine that, that makes espresso anytime I want it. I have a food full of, of uh, excuse me, a refrigerator full of food. I have clothing. Like you just read, you expose yourself to these stories and you just realize, it helps put things into perspective of how good you have it and how bad and drastic and tragic life can get at certain points of history in certain places on the planet. It's just, it's unbelievable. So I want to go into like his mindset. There's a line in a song that I love, and I, I took a screenshot of the lyric page and keep it on my phone. It says, the point I'm making is the mind is a powerful place, and what you feed it can affect you in a powerful way. And so something that saves Ziggy is the fact that like, he's engaged in psychological warfare, and he compares and contrasts like his mindset. Like He's like, I can't allow myself to think that I won't survive. I won't give up, no matter how bad I want to. I'm going to survive. I'm going to get out of this place. Um and so part of that is the fact that Siggy, even from a young age, he has an extreme amount of self-confidence. And this helps him a lot in his business life later on, where he, you know, he takes over an oil company. Dad knew nothing about oil companies. Takes over a bank, knew nothing about bank. He just assumed, hey, hey, I can learn. I can figure these things out. And so what he realizes is like, hey, I'm smarter than these guards. And so the only asset I have, they have guns and they have uh, uh, um, clubs and they can beat me and they can throw me in a gas chamber. Like, I've got to use my mind. And so he says, the guards were sadists, and they looked for any reason to kill. The Nazis opened the prisons of Germany and brought hardened criminals into the camps and made them masters over kids like me. Remember, he's 16 at this time. Uh, he says, because I, because I could outwit the guards, I always felt superior to them. Think about how crazy this, like, what an extreme mindset you have to have. They've taken everything from you. They've separated you from your family. I don't know at this point. He, I, he doesn't know his mom's dead because his mom gets killed the first day. He's going to find that out after. But they've taken your family, taken all your possessions, they've shaved your head, they take away your clothes, they make you in forced labor, and you're like, I'm superior to you. 
so he says, I always felt superior to them. I hated them. I hated their brutality, their inhuman behavior. I felt stronger, more intelligent, and I had confidence in myself from childhood. So even though they had guns and did all the killing, I felt superior. This is what I mean about the, the, the mind is a powerful place and what you feed it can affect you in a powerful way. Uh, it was obviously a touch of arrogance, and some of it was justified and some of it not justified. But even in the totally hopeless condition, I looked down on all of them. And then there's some just background that the author gives us. Between 1.1 and 1.3 million people were murdered in Auschwitz. So he's constantly going up to the guard saying, hey, I have this skill. He lies about his age, says, oh, yeah, you need somebody to make tools? I can make tools. You need anything that they said they needed? He'd say, yep, I can I know how to do that. So they need help in a hospital. I mean, that's like a – and he makes the point. It's not a hospital, you think. Like they're barely people keeping people alive. So he lies his way into a job at um, a hospital by saying that he has experience as a nurse. Uh, the reason he does that is because it's in the middle of winter. This job's inside, and so it saves him from from laboring in the snow and, and a lot of people freezing to death and dying. And it's because of this he f he's going to be reunited temporarily, and he's gonna, actually going to see his father die. Uh, so it says, the first day in the hospital, the capos made me load Jewish patients onto a truck. I still have a picture in my mind of Jewish patients cursing me for not lying to the guards, for not telling them that this one is healthy and that one is healthy. The prisoners thought that a male nurse like me had power to save them. I had no such power. I just loaded them onto a truck. I knew where they were going, but I couldn't bear the idea that I was sending them to their death. So I told myself the truck was taking them to recover at some other hospital or maybe some other camp. Three hours later, the truck came back with their clothing. They were all dead. And then this is just, uh, this is, I hate to use that word again, but this is just unbelievable what I'm about to read to you. One day, a doctor took Siggy to an area of the infirmary where he saw patients on the verge of death. Siggy looked around, and there on one of the lower bunks was his father. He was badly beaten to a point that he wept, and then it says Siggy wept as he recalled the moment, and uh, this moment, and then continued. I knew that he wouldn't make it. My father's last words were, son, who's going to take care of you? Don't worry, I have friends, Siggy reassured him. The death sergeant came the next day with prisoners carrying a big vat of potatoes. Imagine that. You're starving to death, and here you see potatoes like your grandmother used to make. You would give your right arm for it. The guards stood there and ordered me to feed it to the prisoners, and we gave these dying people 10 to 15 large spoons of these raw potatoes. Siggy walked around the room, lading out portions to the sick prisoners, including his father. One older prisoner shoved the ladle away. That older prisoner said to me, What are you, an idiot? I'm not an idiot, I told him. And he says to me, yes, yes, you are. You don't know what that, what's, you don't know what, what's what. Come back tomorrow and you'll see. And the next morning, 80% of them were dead with their stomachs bloated. They had been bleeding all night from it. And there was my father, dead. The potatoes were poisoned. Poisoned potatoes. I think I helped kill my father. Siggy covered his father with a blanket and walked away before prisoners arrived to cart the bodies to the crematorium. I wanted to remember him the way he looked in life, not the way he looked in a pile of corpses. They had been in Auschwitz fewer than 40 days. And unfortunately, it gets even worse. A few weeks later, word reached Siggy that his mother had been sent to the gas chamber the day she arrived. And so this is an example of what I mentioned earlier. That he just refused to believe that he was doomed. The older prisoners are just saying, hey, give up. It's useless. We're all going to die. Just go and, and electrocute yourself on the fence. They told him, you won't survive. Better run now and grab the electric wire. I couldn't take such talk about not coming out alive, Siggy said. I didn't want to hear it. Whenever my mind told me I was not going to survive, the Almighty told me to keep going. So I stayed away from others. 
In the hospital, Ziggy had met a prisoner doctor, whom he described as a bit of a philosopher. Uh, Ziggy told the doctor, so he's got a, he talks about like um, choices inside of Auschwitz posed like a dilemma for prisoners because you didn't know if the information was dependable or not. Like, oh, take that job, don't take the other job. Stay away from that capo, don't go next to this capo. Um, the right, the quote unquote right choice could wind up being fatal. And so he's asking the doctor, like, what should I do? Uh, the SS are trying to recruit me because they need uh, carpenters. But he didn't know if it was like a trick. And so he says, I uh, told the doctor about the carpenter training in the main camp and asked what he thought. I can't tell you what to do, the doctor said. It could be just as bad over there or worse. And the reason I'm bringing this to your attention is because what the doctor says here, this is, he takes this advice not only now, but he takes this advice for the rest of his life. You're a smart young fellow, the doctor said. Follow your instincts. That was advice Siggy would remember for the rest of his life. So he survives almost two years. This is now 1945. The um, There's actually Stalin's forces, the Russian forces, are actually coming into to where Auschwitz is. Uh, and so they're actually having to get all the, the prisoners and make them do what, what is what we know after the fact is a death march. And so really the reason I'm going to read this, this section to you is because this is another illustration that Ziggy constantly had to make life and death decisions under a great amount of uncertainty. And so him and a, he's got a small group of friends or well, he's, this guy, Lothar, which is going to move to America too. He's going to wind up surviving. His name, he changed his name to Larry. So he, Larry winds up saving his life. So they wind up being like really good friends for the rest of their life. But it says the night before the death marches from Auschwitz began uh, and when the other prisoners were asleep, Siggy and Lothar... And four other men crept out and hid in the mud under the barracks, huddled together in their blankets, watching fires burn in the distance, and debated what to do. Rumor had it that the Germans were going to blow up the camp and leave no evidence of their crimes. One man said that, quote-unquote, healthy prisoners, those who could still walk, would be marched out at dawn. Another man said it was impossible to stay hidden under the barracks. Who knew how long they could survive in the bitter cold? Better, they all agreed, to take the chances on the march rather than freeze to death hiding. They crawled back inside the barracks and waited for morning. And so that winds up being the right choice. They were unsure, but the healthy prisoners, the ones that could walk, were forced to march. Now here's the problem. This is January. It's freezing cold. They, they've been, I was going to say living, they've been, I guess, existing on less than 700 calories a day. So you're going to have, it says, they go from nearly 6,000 people start the march. And five days later, they get to this other camp. It's uh, I can't pronounce it. It's like Mauthausen, um, and only 1,600. So 1,600 people survive out of 6,000, Ziggy and Larry being one of them. But this is where uh, he winds up being separated from his best friend. Now, remember this part in a few minutes because it's unbelievable what happens to, to Larry. And so I'll, I'll get there in a minute. So it says, uh, Ziggy, Larry, and some other survivors of the death march collapsed on the barrack floor. Larry, Ziggy said in a weak voice, when they ask you what you can do, say, and he's almost dead. Uh, Ziggy had to wind up like almost carrying him on this march. And the reason he did this is, and he was pissed off at the other people that were supposed to help because Larry had saved a bunch of people's lives. And so people offered him, hey, keep going. They, they passed him in the, the death march. And they told Larry, like, hey, keep it up. You can do. They offered words of encouragement, but they wouldn't actually help carry him. And Ziggy actually wind up helping carry him. He's like, I have this. He saved my life. I have this obligation to do the same for uh, for him. So it says, oh, and so his friend is extremely weak. It says, when they ask you what you can do, say you're a metal worker or a toolmaker, anything they can use for the war effort. Don't forget. Yeah, yeah, Larry mumbled through a haze of fever, hunger, and exhaustion. I'll tell them that. 
over and over and over again. I told him to say that, Siggy explained. Uh, now, he's just he's fast-forwarding because when he gets to America, he actually, one of the first stops, he goes and visits Larry's parents. And so he's telling the, them this story in the book. And so he's saying over and over again, I told him to say that, Sig explained to his parents in frustration years later. If you say you're a metal worker, they're not going to kill you. He says, yes, yes, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. And then he doesn't say it. He doesn't say it. The Germans shipped him to one of the worst subcamps. That is how 18-year-old Ziggy lost track of his best friend with no way of knowing if either of them would survive and if they did, whether or not they would ever find each other again. So they're at this other camp. I think they're in Austria, if I'm not mistaken. And this is like two months later and everybody around him is still dying. And this is just... This gives you an idea of what he had to survive and what he had to experience. He was shoved into a barrack with four other men. They all collapsed from exhaustion, and in the morning, Siggy woke to find that the other men had died in his, in his sleep. The second night, another died, then another, until he was the only one left alive in his bunk. Now look what he has to do here. He arranged the dead bodies next to him as though they were asleep, so that when rations were handed out there, were, when rations were handed out, there would be more stale bread for him to eat. The smell of dead bodies filled the room. And then it is amazing how everything changed overnight. And it's not because the Nazis suddenly said, hey, you know, oh, we, we realize the error of our ways. They're, they're constantly getting pressure. And so now the allies, this is American soldiers, have actually are penetrating the camp. And so the, what I just, the story I just told you, Siggy wakes up the next morning and the Germans are all gone. It's just the prisoners. And so it says, the next morning, Ziggy slowly raised himself up and peered out of the barrack window. The Germans were gone, and in the distance on a hillside was a soldier in a uniform unlike any that he'd ever seen before. As Ziggy watched, American tanks and armored cars crash through the gates. Prisoners emerged slowly from the barracks, shuffling slowly forward, and and Ziggy stumbled along with them. On the day of his liberation, 19-year-old Ziggy was skin and bones and weighed less than 90 pounds. He was nearly dead from exhaustion, exhaustion, malnutrition, and pneumonia. And so this is what I what I just mentioned earlier. What a story. So the U.S. Army, they evacuate the survivors from the camp that Ziggy's in. They send him to a Red Cross hospital in Austria, and he's reunited with his best friend. It gets even crazier. His best friend's parents had escaped. I don't I don't think they ever explained how they separated from their son, but their their family's in America. Well, their son is lost somewhere in, in Europe during the war, right? So Sasigi and, and Larry re, were reunited. Fate had assigned them to the same hospital. Uh, Larry showed Siggy a newspaper clipping that featured a photo of himself on the day he was liberated. One of the first American soldiers to enter the camp had, 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 uh, take, had taken a photo of Larry. When the soldier returned home, he sold... This is so crazy. Just imagine being in, imagine being in his, his parents' shoes with what I'm about to read to you. When the soldier returned home, he sold the photo to the New York Post and the newspaper ran it on the front page. That's how Larry's parents learned their son had survived the Holocaust, by seeing his photo on the front page of the newspaper. Can you believe that? Oh my goodness. Okay, so this story gets even crazier. The very next paragraph. So, oh my goodness. Okay, have you ever seen the movie uh, Inglorious Bastards, Brad Pitt, directed by uh, Quentin Tarantino? It's based on true events, obviously fictionalized, a fictionalized account of true events. But it's these these soldiers, these Jewish soldiers that volunteered to go hunt Nazis. Siggy does something very similar to this. It's not exactly the same because uh, he was recruited. He's recruited because he speaks all kinds of languages. I think he knows German, 
Polish and Russian, if I'm not mistaken. I, I could, I might be wrong about that. And it's not like he's completely fluent as he is in German, but he, he knows enough. So there is this thing called the U.S. Army Counterintelligence Corps. Okay, and so they're going to hire survivors of the, the concentration camps to go hunt Nazis and Siggy volunteers. And this is how he gets. He winds up serving. It's called the CIC, the, the Counterintelligence Corps. It's a part of the U.S. Army. Okay. He winds up serving them for two years. They get him the, uh, the, the like past immigration and give him a free uh, ticket to, to get on a boat and get. That's how he gets to New York. That's how the story starts where he lands in New York and he's meeting his sister, Jenny. It's because of what he does here. And so it says, once they regained sufficient strength, they went to work for the U.S. Army Counterintelligence Corps. Uh, so Ziggy talks about that. I got a permission to form a, uh, an armed backup team. Ziggy's team was given a Jeep and sent out the door. Let's go hunt some Nazis, Ziggy told his crew. This gave him the chance to capture some of their former Nazi oppressors. And so they wind up going into all these little small towns in Austria and everywhere else. They're just hunting for a lot of uh, Nazis, like fled other parts of Europe. Some went to Switzerland, some went to South America. Some wind up staying there. So he winds up helping catch. So Joseph Goebbels is like this well-known. Um, I talked about him a lot on the Churchill podcast I did. And so he was like the minister of propaganda for the Nazi party. Well, his brother, they caught him, but they couldn't find. I know. I think Joseph killed himself, if I'm not mistaken. He had a brother named Hans. They were hunting. Ziggy's crew, this, 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 these Jewish Nazi hunters, wind up staking out his house and finding him. The team rushed up, handcuffed him, and then drove him to CIC headquarters for questioning. And so he winds up, there's a picture of Hans Goebel, which is Joseph's brother, being interrogated by the CIC. And then I think he stands, if I'm not mistaken, he stands trial for, um, for war crimes. They send him to life imprisonment, and I think then he dies of... I can't remember if he kills himself. In, in anyways, it doesn't matter. The point being is that Diggy's unbelievable story gets even more unbelievable. The fact that they catch Joseph Goebbels' brother and wind up turning him over to, to the, the Americans. And so I want to get to his, like what he does when he gets to America. I want to wrap this whole section up. In November 1947, as a thank you note, or excuse me, as a thank you from the CIC of near, for nearly two years of service, 21-year-old Ziggy received free passage to New York. On December 12th, he arrived in America looking for work and a new life. Okay, so now we go back to where the story began. 21 years old, no education, thick accent, 200 bucks in his pocket, no skills really to, to speak of, and a, a mind tormented by just witnessing the, 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 the darkest period of maybe human history. And so he's going to try to take any job. I'm gonna, there's, there's a lot going on in these sections. I'm, I'm really going to give you like the, the top highlights, obviously. Really think you should – I highly recommend reading the book. I think you, you, there's a lot of value in actually reading the entire book. But he starts off very first job. He's hired to – the reason I'm going to uh, read all this to you or at least the highlights to you is the fact that this is just something we see over and over again. It's just like you don't know what the future is going – what the future holds. You can only connect the dots looking backwards to quote Steve Jobs. So what he, what Ziggy has to do is just like, okay, let me take the first opportunity. His first opportunity is shoveling snow for $2 a day. Remember, he dies with a net worth of hundreds of millions of dollars, okay? But he shovels snow. Okay, right, now I'm making 2 bucks a day. That's $14 a week. How can I do a little better than that? So then he, he takes that first opportunity, saves a little bit of money, gets a second job. His second job, now he's working. Remember, this point in American history, it's a, a huge industrial base. There's just sweatshops all over Manhattan making all kinds of different products. And so Siggy's just going to take jobs in, in places, you know, that are 
they wind up being very bad for your health. He's doing whatever he can to try to make money, just get to that next step, that next opportunity. So it says his second job was working in a sweatshop in downtown Manhattan that manufactured leather goods. Uh, so now he's making, he goes from making $14 a week to now he's making $28.50 a week. His sister's working for a bow tie manufacturer at a bow tie factory. He's like, hey, can you give me a job there? Hoping to earn a better living, he convinced her to introduce him to her boss at the bow tie factory. How much are you earning? Uh, Mrs. Friedman asked. $36 a week, Siggy answered. A 20% exaggeration. And I won't work less for that. Work less than that. So, so, so she goes, okay, I'll pay you 36 bucks a week. So he goes from $14 a week to $28.50 a week. Now he's making $36 a week. And now he's working in a bow tie sweatshop. So then his brother is actually working for uh, a company that, that manufactures neckties. And so he gets a job there. He's like, okay, I can make more money if I sell. Instead of you know working in a sweatshop, I'll become a salesman. And that's really the way to think of Ziggy. Is his, his greatest skill in life is the fact that he was a master salesman. He was a very gifted speaker. Uh, we'll, we'll go into more details like how like how he, how he applies that to actually <laughs> take over oil and banking companies. Um, so he says, okay, I'm going to work as a necktie salesman. Uh, why? Because every sale earns him a commission. Uh, his friend that saved his life in the concentration camp and the one that then Ziggy saves his life on that death march, Larry, is also there. So he convinces the necktie company to, to hire Larry as well. They work there for a little bit. Then they hear about this other company called National Pictures. So everything I'm telling you is taking place over a lot. There's a lot more detail. I'm just trying to give you to get to the point where he, he actually starts because the subtitle of the book is he became a Wall Street legend. So I got to get to the point where he starts studying the stock market and, and that's how he's going to overtake these companies. Uh, so then they find National Pictures. They sell like door-to-door stuff. So he starts selling stuff door-to-door. He sells stuff like blankets. They have these like lights that you sit on top of your TV, like just like little trinkets that, you know, random things that people might want. So he does that for a while. He saves up money. Then he's going to start his own company. And this is where he actually winds up meeting uh, his his wife. And so it says she learned that her beau or her boo was entrepreneurial and had recently started a business with another refugee manufacturing change purses, which they sold to pocketbook and handbag factories. She assumed her parents would be impressed by such an ambitious young man. Her parents were shocked. So he, you know, no education, not a lot of money. I should tell you, he's 27 years old at this point in the story. So he's been in America for six years. His wife comes from a extremely wealthy, like, uh, like uh, upper class Jewish family. And so I've written a of myself on this page. Is he can't catch a break. And we're going to see why. Uh, she she assumed her parents would be impressed by such an ambitious young man. Her parents were shocked. They thought of their daughter dating a refugee, a man with no money or education, was intolerable. So they wound up having to elope. Her parents don't know that. Three weeks later, Siggy showed up at their house to attend the Sweet 16 party of Naomi, that's his wife's younger sister. He rang the bell when Naomi's mother opened the door and saw him. This is what I mean about she, he can't catch a break. Uh, she lunged at him. She lunged at Siggy and smacked him in the face. Get out, she yelled. You're not welcome here. Uh, One of her guests, Rabbi Greenstein, grabbed her arm. What are you doing, he said. This man is a Holocaust survivor. You should welcome him. I don't care, Naomi's mother screamed. Get him out of my house. And so the reason I bring that to your attention, I think it's actually really important. Because, especially right after I just finished rereading Ed Dorff's biography and I, autobiography and I told you I think like he's out of anybody else who studied on the podcast he's the closest I, I feel got to like mastering life and really like had a it was successful in every area of his life um and something at Dorp had where he was very supportive he, he's like listen me and my wife decided we're gonna spend like we're gonna give our kids all the education they can they can possibly want 
and teach them how to think for themselves. And then whatever life they choose for themselves, we're going to support them. And I think Ed did that because he realized, hey, the, the paths in my life where I was able to choose for myself, like the ones I like, I, what I learned on my own, what I wanted to pursue on my own, those are the things I found most satisfying and I was the best at. As for, and if somebody said, hey, no, don't do that job that you really want to do. Take this other job because other people might think it's more prestigious. Or, hey, don't study the subject you're genuinely interested in. Study this subject because other people might you know, think that it's, it's better. You might make more money in the future. He realized like that those were dead-end paths. And that you would never truly excel at something that you weren't, it wasn't like self-directed, self-driven. So what's interesting to me is the prejudice that his wife's parents had for him saying, hey, you're a refugee, you're not good enough for my daughter. He did, he winds up doing the same thing when his kids are grown and they want to date other people. Like his, his daughter wants to date this other person she actually loves. And he's like, no, that, 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 uh, that guy's not good enough for you. Like basically he makes that same mistake. And so his Ziggy's story is extremely inspiring. Don't get me wrong, but he's also flawed. There's a lot of things he does where I think like we can learn like, okay, let's not do that. And I don't want to sit here and like, you know, criticize somebody that went through what he went through. I can't like, I can't even begin to imagine what that was like, but I just want to, I think it's important. It's like, Hey, I went through this terrible experience. I didn't like the fact that you know, I, I was uneducated, but I'm ambitious. I'm working hard. I will I will provide a great life for my family, your daughter, who I want to marry me, right? Like, why didn't you learn not to do that when that was done to you? He would only want his daughters and his sons to marry like people. They had to be, I obviously, they had to be Jewish. <laughs> That's That was obviously very important to him. He yells, like, if you fall in love with a Gentile, like, I, they should have died in Auschwitz. Like, he's an extreme character. There's a lot of stuff in the book like that, right? But his point is, is like, no, they have to be Ivy League educated. They have to, it was like, but you weren't Ivy League educated. Like, isn't it more important that they're intelligent? And like, okay, what if they, you weren't, it's not that you weren't smart enough to get to the Ivy League, but you were in Auschwitz when other people were college age. Like, I just am surprised he didn't make that connection, I guess is my point. So eventually his, his in-laws do come around. They realize, okay, this, he's very motivated. He works extremely hard. He's a workaholic. That's, he doesn't really have, like, that's it. He's, if he's awake, he's working. Um, you know, he's got demons. He's just, that, that's what his focus is on. And his entire life is dedicated to that. And so he winds up working his, his uh, in-laws own like cemeteries and uh, like they, they manufacture, what is it, like headstones, bronze and, and headstones. So he winds up running part of the, their business. The reason I'm bringing to your, that to your attention is because in his spare time, as he's running this business, he's making a little bit of money, he starts studying the stock market. And this is going to lead him to the career that, like where he built his business empire is by doing this. So it says, in his spare time, he studied the stock market. And with the money earned from selling bronze plaques and granite headstones, he purchased modest amounts of stocks. One of his investments was in Wilshire Oil Company. Uh, it was a company in Texas. Wilshire seemed like a safe bet. It was a small company and its stock was affordable. And then this also gives you something that, uh, an insight into how he ran his businesses later on. He was, did not believe in diversification and he was obsessed with accumulating stock. So it says when Naomi found out her husband was purchasing shares of Wilshire on a regular basis, she chided him. More stock? We can barely pay the bills and you're buying more stock. Siggy made excuses, but he didn't stop buying. And this winds up being the turning point in his life because he buys the stock. He winds up going. They're 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 really entrenched in the in the Jewish community in New Jersey at the time, and so they go to this this like farewell dinner 
and he's going to meet this guy, this older entrepreneur named Soul Diamond. And meeting Soul Diamond changes Ziggy's life forever. So it says, among the guests was a businessman named Soul Diamond, a 78-year-old man who was one of New York's most prominent entrepreneurs. Diamond had been a member of, uh, of the New York Stock Exchange, and after retiring, he parlayed his familiarity with the market to become a major shareholder in mining companies and other businesses. He was discreet about his business success. He refrained from bragging, dressed without, dressed without ostentation, and drove a 20-year-old Cadillac. It still runs. Why would I change it? Uh, his, his associates described him as a low-key multimillionaire who didn't try to get, get on TV or radio or in the papers. He just accumulated stocks. So they went up meeting. They went up talking. They discovered they both own stock in Wilshire Oil Company of Texas. Diamond said he was – so now Diamond's telling Ziggy this. He's saying he's concerned over Wilshire's failure to realize its potential. The company has a number of deals cooking that could lead to a substantial increase in revenues, provided that the right person was at the helm. The company needed fresh energy and a charismatic leader. He could lead the takeover himself, Diamond said, but he was approaching 80. Might Ziggy consider leading the charge? And so – Diamond puts this idea in Ziggy's mind. Ziggy's, you know, let's see, 40 years younger than than um than Diamond. He's like, why don't we accumulate stock and then let's do a takeover and then let's pursue, be more aggressive in pursuing the opportunities that the current ownership is letting lag. That is essentially the idea that Diamond gives to Ziggy that Ziggy runs with. And so this is going to be the beginning of them plotting to take over this oil company. Ziggy was excited by the offer. His options in business so far had only been sales, which limited his income. Heading up an oil company would put him in the big leagues where serious money could be made. He knew nothing, and this is the story of his life, he knew nothing about natural resources, business finance, or how to take over a company. But he had no hesitation accepting Soul Diamond's offer. In Ziggy, remember, he's like, oh, I'm a master toolmaker. I'm a nurse. I'm the same thing. He's just like, well, I'll just figure it out. I'm going to, <laughs> it doesn't matter. I don't know how to do it now. I can learn how to do it. Uh, and Ziggy Diamond saw a real go-getter who would who would hike to the ends of the earth if need be. Uh, Soul Diamond said he would back Ziggy financially if Ziggy would take up the task of overturning the man who was then president of Wilshire. Ziggy welcomed the challenge and the opportunity to show the world that he knew more about business than people gave him credit for. Meanwhile, with as much money as their middle-class income would allow, Ziggy continued to purchase shares in Wilshire. I didn't see how this was going to change our life, his wife said, remembering other stocks her husband had brought her and other career moves that he had made. But that's how it turned out. And so that's another point where she makes like, well, yeah, but you said this about other stocks. Yeah, you said this about other business opportunities. He had way more jobs than I listed off to you. And I think that's the great thing, too, where he just he had this perseverance. It's like, OK, I went down. A, I, I took a risk. It was a dead end. I fell down. I'll get back up, dust myself off, try again. I'm going to go after another opportunity and just go. And he was just, this guy is relentless over and over again. And so I don't want to like, I don't want to mislead you. Like this is a, this takes years for him to accomplish what's happening here with the, the oil company. And part of this is the fact that he was just a gifted salesman. And so he was already part of this community. He went to every, like he did this on, on like a grassroots individual by individual basis. That's also part of the reason why it took so long. Uh, to take control of Wilshire Oil Company, Ziggy needed to purchase large amounts of company stock. For years, he aggressively solicited family, friends, and acquaintances, enrolling everyone he could he could to purchase shares of Wilshire and join his investor group. And so this is what I was referencing earlier, how he's just a, a master salesperson. Uh, Ziggy laid out his proposal. If they joined him in purchasing Wilshire stock, eventually they could take control of the company, run it tight, or run it right, excuse me, and generate substantial earnings for shareholders. The way Ziggy explained it, the plan, ma the plan made perfect sense. That was his gift, an ability to convince anyone of anything. P 
People were mesmerized by him. You couldn't refuse Siggy. He attracted people like bees to honey. Everybody was glued to his words, and they swallowed everything he served up. I ended up buying some stock at $7 a share, and so did my father, my son-in-law, his brother, and also invested heavily. And we all made a profit. We were convinced by Siggy's salesmanship. Otherwise, we wouldn't have bought the stock. Who had ever heard of the Wilshire Oil Company of Texas? By the winter of 1964, that means Ziggy would be 38 years old, Ziggy and his small group of investors had finally acquired enough stock that he was now in position to address the Wilshire board in person and assess, and assess their response to his takeover bid. And so it took years to work himself into a position to get to the position he's at right now. And then it goes extremely fast from, for, from here. Really quick, I just want to pull out one paragraph from this meeting he's going to have with the Wilshire board because this really gives you a look into how he views himself. Um, so it says, Gentlemen, you're looking at a man who had the fox-like instincts to survive history's darkest hour. A man who has no fear of adversity and who cannot be intimidated by overwhelming odds. The Almighty has given me a second chance at life, along with the skills to make great fortunes. So they own such a large percentage. They get, I think, two seats on the board. He winds up being able to influence management. He's eventually going to be elected CEO of this company. This happens all within a year. Uh, Siggy, Siggy's plan, I'm fast forwarding a little bit. Siggy's plans were riskier, but the alternative he concluded was to allow Wickshire to continue sinking. Uh, let him run with it. McDonald, who was running the, the company, told the board, run with it. Siggy did. He would implement new projects and increase the number of wells. He made every attempt to look like an operator. Uh, the first year, Siggy moved forward with the development of 11 exploratory wells. And then he winds up benefiting from this, this, unfortunately, the, the, the death of the CEO of the company. Um, and he, really, the thing, way to think about this is he, he's just extreme, way more risk on than the, the previous management of the company was. Wilshire's president died suddenly of a heart attack. The board elected Siggy as Wilshire's new president and CEO. It was a remarkably fast rise for Siggy, one that had begun just three years after meeting Soul Diamond and only one year after Siggy's first meeting with the Wilshire board. And so now he finds himself as the president and CEO of an oil company, an oil company that used to be owned by Canadians that is, that, is, that is in Texas that he's running from New Jersey. His message to stockholders was positive and exciting. So now he's 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 essentially like once he becomes a CEO, he's instead of selling them to buy the stock, he's selling them on the dream, right? The dream of what this company, not what the company is now, but what it will soon become. His message to stockholders was positive and exciting. The engineers were optimistic about Wilshire's future. The company had great potential. And while not yet profitable, Wilshire owned leases on multiple properties ripe for development. New technologies were coming online. Opportunities in the oil industry abounded. And now, with the right people at the helm, the future would be prosperous. This is all what Siggy's telling them, right? Stockholders picked up on a not-too-subtle subtext. The old board members had dragged the company down, men in their senior years who lacked the drive and fresh vision to turn potentials into reality. Their average age was between 80 and dead, Siggy once commented. And this is such a great, uh, like a great line. Like a racehorse pointing his nose at a gap in the field and bursting through to take the lead, Ziggy grabbed the moment and ran. So this is another example of what I meant. Like, okay, I'm going to grab the first opportunity that's shoveling snow. Then I'm going to make bow ties. Then I'm going to sell. Then I'm going to be door-to-door salesman. I'm just going to do every single thing. I'm going to get to the next opportunity. Once I get to that opportunity, I'm going to look around. Where's the next place of advancement? So they're doing well. They're starting to, to uh, some of these wells are working out. But he's like, this is taking too slow. 
he's like, we need cash. We need a lot more cash because the more cash we can get, the more wells we can drill, the more wells we can drill, the more money we're going to make. And so this is where he gets the idea. He's like, we need to buy a bank. Like the, the audacity of this guy is just amazing. In Siggy's mind, it was not enough. Although these gains are very gratifying. I'm fast forwarding, uh, let's see, four, I think four years in the story. Your management is not satisfied since the growth potential of the company has not yet been realized. Siggy's energy and ambitious new, and ambition knew no bounds. If Wilshire was going to keep growing, the company would need a steady stream of cash. Why not buy a bank? Banks have lots of cash. And so this idea of getting a bank, he's going to wind up taking over this, this small, at the time, a small bank. I think they have like 100 million of assets. By the time he dies, when he right before he dies, he runs the bank up until he dies. They're going to have like $4 billion of assets. So it's called the Trust Company of New Jersey. And then it's referred in the, the book as by its initials, TCNJ. There is a lot of detail in the book, but I really this one page that I'm on is going to tell you, this like half page right here, is going to tell you why he wanted to own a bank. This is also going to get him in trouble later. I forgot to tell you, like uh, I've said, his story is unbelievable. In addition to surviving Auschwitz and coming to the country with no money, dying hundreds of millions of dollars in net worth, taking over a publicly traded oil company, taking over a bank. He, he's also the first person in, in American history to wind up suing the Federal Reserve. <laughs> so there's just insane. And the reason they wind up suing him is because what he's about to do here, or they try to get him to divest the oil company from the bank later on. But this is really why, like the, the idea that builds his, the reason I want to bring this to your attention is because this is the idea that, that Ziggy uses that builds his business empire. And so this is why he wants to own a bank. So he says, uh, the more Siggy learned about the nation's complex tax codes, the more he saw one great benefit in Wilshire taking over the bank. If Wilshire acquired 80% or more of the bank's stock, uh, they could file a consolidated tax return. At that point, the, the bank would have the right to upstream to Wilshire's tax monies, otherwise due to the government. So what does that mean? Instead of writing a check to the IRS for taxes owed on the bank's earnings, TCNJ could legitimately write a check for that amount to Wilshire. So Wilshire is the parent company. The oil company owns the bank. Okay, This upstreaming of tax money was perfectly legal and would provide Wilshire with abundant cash to finance its growth. So that's why he's doing it. He wants the, the, the profits of the bank, going to drill more uh, wells and, and develop the oil company's earnings, right? The bank would become what Siggy affectionately called his cash cow, supplying Wilshire with large steady streams of development money for opening new wells. Okay, I just said that. The arrangement would be potentially a potential gold mine. To drill new wells and expand, other oil companies had to constantly raise money from outside investors in complex limited partnership agreements. The process was time-consuming and risky. By receiving funding from their own subsidiary, Wilshire could effectively avoid such risks, and this is also one of the main points. There was also a profit motive. No outside investors meant not having to share profits. So he does the exact same thing he did with the the oil company. He starts accumulating, winds up getting 20%, then 25%, then just buying up. He does tender offers. I think this takes like two and a half years, I want to say. And here's the punchline. And I just wrote, this guy's unstoppable. At age 44, Siggy was now the youngest chairman and CEO of any major bank in the state. Now, what's interesting to me is from the rest of the book, and we're about, ha I'm about halfway through the book at this point in the story. He's going to live another, let's say, 30 something, like maybe 30 years, something like that. Almost all of the book 
is about the bank. You very rarely hear about he considered himself a banker. And because like he winds up growing this this bank, it's in New Jersey, winds up growing it to be one of the biggest banks in, in, in the, the state of New Jersey. And so this is what the most the vast majority of the book is about from here on in. This is an example. And so he would do things. The reason uh, I bring that to your attention is because he would do things. There's a great um, essay by Paul Graham that says, do things that don't scale. And it talks about like how when you're a small company, um, there's a counterintuitive idea. It's like you should do things that don't scale. And those by doing things that don't scale help you turn into a large company. And so I like obviously Siggy had never read that. Uh, that essay, but he understood that intuitively. And so his whole modus operandi is doing things that don't scale. Just like, hey, I took control of a, uh, an oil company and I did that by going door to door, every friend, every family member, every friend they had, any family member they had, and literally going one by one, maybe groups of a handful of people at a time, buy the stock, buy the stock, buy the stock. This is what he does. And he constantly recruits every single person. If you're in the elevator with Siggy, he's like, where do you bank? And he's going to convert you into a customer. And then he, he's, I mean, he, this guy's insane. There is some things that are like over the, li- over the line, like he, the way he talks to people and yells at them is not the nicest person as you could imagine. You'll be sitting in his office. He'll ask you to see your wallet. I'm like, why do you want to see your wallet? And then he'll go through your wallet. And if he notices other ATMs, cards for other banks, he'll cut up the ATM cards right in front of you. You know, say you're not like he'll start crying, saying you're disloyal to him. How dare you? How could you possibly bank with somebody else after everything I've done for you? Like the the larger point is there. He's got some good ideas in this sense that he does things that don't scale because those things allow him to grow into a, a like a larger bank. It's going to by spoiling your customers, which I'll get to in a minute. They bring you more customers. So this is just I know I left myself as like we need more of this. What he's about to do here, which again from a financial aspect doesn't make sense, but if somebody did this for you, if a business did this for you, you're going to tell other people, almost everybody that needs banking services, what they did for you. So he winds up walking in. At this point, he's running the, the bank. He He's on, like he is in the bank all the time. He's traveling around to every single branch. Like he's still doing like teller work. Like he is complete. He never loses the connection to the customer. Another smart thing he does. So it says he walk, walks in and sees this like woman like crying in in the um and like she, one of his employees is trying to help her and he so he steps in says the woman pointed to a number at the bottom of the page I don't have enough money to buy Christmas presents for my family she she explained in broken English I read in the paper that if I join your Christmas club program and save five dollars each week then at the end of the year I'll have four hundred bucks but they say I only have two hundred sixty dollars and now I don't know what to do she buried her hand in her head her head in her hands the manager studied the woman's passbook. You had, and this is what I mean, like the manager's acting logical, but that's not the right move in this situation. It is not like a pure financial transaction here where most businesses think that way, right? The manager studied the woman's passbook. You had to start, you had to start the contributions in January in order to make the $400, he said. You started in June. All your interest was, all your interest was credited. I'm sorry, but the number is accurate. Siggy stepped in and moved the manager aside firmly. <laughs> There's so many stories like this in the book. Uh, Madam, how do you do? I'm Mr. Wilzig. I'm the bank president. Siggy took the passbook and pretended to study the numbers carefully before handing it back to her. It was our mistake, madam. We miscalculated the interest. The real number is $400. You can buy all your presents. Don't be upset. The woman embraced him. And so this is Siggy's point. Uh, TCNJ was not the only bank in town. 
Customers had options. It would not do to penalize someone because she had not understood the rules. Why give her a reason to switch to another bank? He wanted his customers to be happy. And so before I go back to doing more things that don't scale and just trying to really spoil your customers and how you keep doing that, your word of mouth is going to spread over a long period of time. Like this guy owned a bank for multiple decades. It took a long time to grow from, hundred, I think, $180 million to $4 billion, if I'm not mistaken. But I have to bring this point up because he's also just like this crazy entertainer. <laughs> and he like he was very – it's interesting. He had uh, almost like a uh, dual personality in the sense like he was – he wanted to be respected and admired by other people. But he also didn't care what other people thought. And so like, he would just bust out into singing and like dancing in the middle of like public places. And really he's just happy to be alive if you think about it. Like why wouldn't you be ha- – yeah, when he saw like how precarious life really is. So it says he had a beautiful voice and sounded like a professional singer, but he'd sing at the oddest times. He would sing in restaurants and public places. He would dance in aisles. He would be oblivious to everyone around him. The whole world was his stage. Often he seemed more like an entertainer than a banker. People would ask us, now this is his children, does your father own the restaurant? We tell them no. He's just happy to be alive. People thought he was nuts and would laugh at him, but he didn't care. We were proud to have a father who could have that much fun and not care about what people around him thought. And just that idea, just he's just happy to be alive. No, he doesn't own the restaurant. He's just happy to be alive. And it's funny because he winds up meeting some of his best friends because they move in next door. And Siggy had the habit of singing in the shower. And one day the guy that just moved in, like after several days of hearing this, this, this relentless singing, opened the window to the house. He's like, will you shut up? <laughs> and, and then Siggy pops out and they wind up becoming friends from that. Um, I'm going to go to actually, you know, one more thing before I get to, to treating, spoiling customers. Uh, he, so when he hires people, he's like, listen, you don't have to, he wants you to, he's like, you're not going to walk as fast as me, talk as fast as I do, or think or work as fast as I do, but you have to, you have to do all those faster than you think is possible. So he was really into walking fast, talking fast and working fast. Some of this is like, he saved time because he just wouldn't say goodbye. <laughs> he would just like, you'd be in the room with him. He'd say what he needed done. And like, there's no, okay, we're wrapped up. It's like, no, I just, he just left. And he'd do the same thing on the phone. Abrupt departures, whether from a room or from a phone call, were classic Siggy. He had no time for lengthy courtesies and hung up on everybody without saying goodbye. Very often, people would would keep talking into a void, and only after hearing the disconnected dial tone did they realize that he had hung up a long time ago. And so in the book, there's a lot of examples of him having conversations with customers. Like I said, he's just constantly like, this is the president of the bank, and he's still meeting with people. He winds up getting in trouble with the FDIC, he gets in trouble with the Fed, gets in trouble with all these other people later on. Um, like, he, he never, like, you know, I don't think he's ever fined. I don't think he goes to jail. He, he doesn't go to jail, for sure, uh, anything like that. But he's just, like, in a heavily regulated, the most regulated business on the planet, which he talks about later. Maybe I shouldn't have entered the most regulated business on the planet. And he just doesn't. Like he doesn't think rules apply to him, and he doesn't like people telling him what to do. Um, but the point is, is like he does things that you just wouldn't expect from somebody running this giant bank. And so he's constantly recruiting customers on a one 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 by one basis. And so I just want to pull out this this exchange that he's having with the customer because I really think that it it illustrates like this concept of doing things that don't scale, and that if you spoil your customers, if you do the, what's best for the customers, it's just going to bring you more customers. So it says the customer was amazed by Ziggy's great rates and couldn't figure out how his bank ever made money. Ziggy, he asked, how can you afford to give me such special treatment? Ziggy answered candidly, I know that you're going to play golf this weekend at, at, at your country club with all your friends. When someone says he doesn't like the rates at his bank or tells you his bank's turned him down for a loan, do you know what you're going to say? 
you're going to say, you must immediately call my friend Siggy, the chairman of the board of my bank. He always approves my loans. And do you know what your friend is going to reply? The chairman of the board of your bank personally approves your loans? What's his number? That's why I give you such special treatment, Siggy said. Because you will be my goodwill ambassador to all your friends. You will be referring at least one new customer to me each month. And that's how I'm going to make up for the losses I take with you. Siggy went through this scenario with major customers three or four times a day, almost every day for years on end. And then his son, who also worked in the bank, brings us, like, wraps this up for us. My father's strategy was spoiling certain customers in order to create a constant stream of customer referrals from them. And then he, Ziggy also has a really interesting, I think this is a useful framework. So he has this idea of like differentiating your, uh, between the employees that you have and realizing they're either a workhorse or a racehorse. And so this is what he means by that. When evaluating the job performance of his employees, he differentiated between workhorses and racehorses. A workhorse was someone who did the minimum, followed the same routine day in and day out, and rarely came up with a great idea. So that's the workhorse, okay? A racehorse was someone with potential. An individual who showed initiative, ambition, and the ability to go beyond the call of duty. Of course you need workhorses in any business, he explained. All businesses need people to do the basics. But there's no point spending precious time trying to turn a workhorse into a racehorse. And so something the book mentions over and over again is that he had one of the, the, the largest egos that you could ever find in a human being. Um, he talks about like, oh, you can't, like he tells his kids later on that you can't marry that person because you're the daughter of a genius or you're the son of a genius. And so everybody, like he, he would yell at people and insult people. And he'd call every his favorite insult was a schmuck. Uh, he's like, oh, this person's a schmuck. This person, like that person's a schmuck, everything else. He was really relentless with the pressure he put on those around him. Like this is a very hard dude, as you could imagine, going uh, everything he had experienced, right? Um, and so he, he put, he was relentless with the pressure he put around on people, on, on those around him, his family members, obviously people he worked with, but he's also could be pretty funny. So this is an example of that sometimes to put, they're talking about like his, you know, kind of, a little disrespectful to people at times, but he says sometimes his put downs were amusing. I don't know how so and so could have made this ridiculous investment. He said, "If he's such a great businessman, how could he let himself be suckered into buying something so worthless?" Goes to show you, even smart chickens shit on their own feathers. He would conclude, quoting an old Yiddish saying. I had never heard of that, and that made me laugh. Even smart chickens shit on their own feathers. That sounds like something that Charlie Munger would say. So that's why I started laughing him. Uh, those who knew him best understood that the humor did little to erase the nightmares of his past. And so this is very interesting because right after it talks about, you know, undoubtedly poor treatment of people around him. It talks about uh, his complicated relationship with, with his religion and with God and the fact that from from there's no getting over what he went through. And so it tormented him until the day he died. And so it's, he winds up having like a almost like he uses rabbi as like a therapist okay so it says rabbi cat served as siggy's therapist and confidant the one person with whom siggy could discuss his nightmares and flashbacks so he would wake up in the middle of the night screaming he'd have nightmares he'd be drenched in sweat like you know just i, I just can't even imagine I, I know i'm repeating myself and that's not very descriptive but it's just i just have no words for this so it says uh, the rabbi and Siggy would speak for hours about the meaning of life, the role of evil, and whatever business issues were on his mind. Siggy and Rabbi Katz also shared an existential d dilemma, namely how to reconcile a bene benevolent God with the murder of more than a million children in the Holocaust. How come you never go to the synagogue? Siggy's young son once asked. I have a mixed relationship with God, he replied. 
I go to synagogue on the Jewish holidays and give thanks um, to the Almighty. Without the will of the Almighty, there's no way a shorty like me would have survived the Holocaust. But I don't go to synagogue every week. I have a hard time being thankful for the murder of a million and a half Jewish children or the murder of my innocent seven-year-old nephew and two-year-old niece. So what he's referencing there is that, that line when they separated him right when he got to Auschwitz. He's put in the left line, the girl in the green coat, and some of his other family members are put in the right. In his right line was his sister, her, her husband, and their seven-year-old son and two-year-old daughter. And they were killed that day. They were gassed and killed that day. So there's an entire chapter called Government Schmucks. And this is where he starts fighting. He's going to wind up suing the Federal Reserve. And this is like the downside. The, the good side of having a giant ego is the fact that, hey, I don't know, you know, I don't know. I'm not a toolmaker. I can figure out how to be a toolmaker. I'm not a nurse. I'll figure out how to make a nurse, be a nurse, right? And I'm doing that for literally life and death. Once I get to America, like I'm learning on the job. I don't know how to, don't know much about stocks. I can teach myself about stocks. I don't know how to run an oil company. I can teach myself. It's like that's the good side of having this, this supreme self-confidence, this ego. I always think of... You know, I look for any excuse to, to regurgitate this quote from Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari. I've told you, I don't know, a dozen, probably a dozen times on past podcasts about this because I think he's dead on. And he, what Nolan realized is not only that, like he was one of the first – when Nolan was founding technology companies, it was very rare for the founder to actually run the technology company, right? At that time, they would they would start the company and then they would bring in older management. And so Nolan Bushnell was one of the – one of, like he laid the foundation for a lot of these technology uh, company founders and CEOs to actually maintain control of their company, right? He was doing that in the 80s. And so he noticed something about his own life, but also Steve Jobs, who was, you know, he worked for Nolan, was like 10 years younger than Nolan. And so he says, perhaps everyone has creative potential, but only the arrogant are self-confident enough to press their creative ideas on others. Steve believed he was always right and was willing to push harder and longer than other people who might have had equally good ideas but who caved under pressure. So the reason I bring that up is because that's counterintuitive. Most people say, hey, you know, don't be arrogant, don't, you know, be humble, whatever the case is. And and Nolan's saying, no, if you're humble, if you're like you're going to lose. Um, and so you see that with Siggy. He says right here, Siggy had a deep-rooted hatred of authority. He could not tolerate anyone telling him what to do. The animosity was very deep-seated and very obvious. So that's beneficial when he's building his career. It also gets him into trouble with the Federal Reserve. He wants to sue them with the FDIC, with the SEC, with all these other regulators because he he did not he would not listen to other people. He thought he knew better. He literally calls the reason the chapter I'm in is called government schmucks is because they would tell him they would give him an order to do things it's like I'm not doing this and it, like he'd have to hire attorneys and he they'd have these huge fights and he was convinced that he knew better um and in some cases he was right <laughs> they tried to get him to divest his real estate because the the real estate on the books in on his bank were like there was a there was a recession and they went the, the value dropped and so the regular is like, you have to sell this, get off your books. He's like, you idiot. This real estate is five miles from New York City. Real estate is cyclical. I'm not selling. They have this huge fight. Somehow he he avoids having to sell it. And then he winds up coming back and doubling what he made on the real estate. So he's actually right in that, that example. So this is, there's a very complicated story in the book. This paragraph is really going to tell you like what what his fight with the Federal Reserve was all about. 
and don't worry about the name of these acts and these laws because the book talks about the laws change constantly. They're renamed, they're updated. But at this point, the Fed is saying, hey, an oil company cannot have ownership of a bank. You have to divest. You have to separate your two holdings, right? And he didn't want to do that. So it says the Fed officer cited the Bank Holding Company Act, the BHC Act, which stipulated that not that a non-banking company could not own or operate a commercial bank. The assumption behind the BHC Act, they said, was that an oil man like Siggy knew nothing about banking and that his risky oil drilling jeopardized bank customers, the bank customers' money. Ziggy, the federal officer, said, you have been notifi- we have notified nearly 400 parent companies across the U.S. that they must get rid of their banking subsidiaries. Your company is the only holdout. And so another thing about Ziggy is the fact that he's highly leveraged, and yet all of his wealth is concentrated in his company. Um, he also has constant stress and, and health problems. He's a constant workaholic. He's constantly worried about his business. So there's just some, this gives you an idea of like how he thought about asset allocation. And then even when he's about to have quadruple bypass surgery, listen to what he says to his daughter. His daughter has to come in. There's some complicated way they get around these regulations. His daughter winds up running one of the companies, but she's really like, he still has control. Like he steps aside, but he still controls. So there's a bunch of that in the the book as well. As a further consequence of the constant buying of stock, Siggy was forever cash poor. Whatever wages, bonuses, or cash dividends he earned, he used to pay down his margin loans or else buy more stock in his two companies. He, had, he was this high and mighty CEO of a bank, collecting a huge salary and huge bonuses every year, and no one suspected he was also often desperate for cash. That's where some of his migraine headaches came from. His fortune was tied up in those stocks. He had heart problems and was about to undergo... This, now this is his daughter t- telling us the story. He had, his, he had heart problems and was about to undergo a quintuple uh, bypass operation. On the gurney, he called me close to him, and I was expecting him to say something like, Sherry, I love you. Thanks for staying with me. Instead, he motioned for me to bend down so he could whisper in my ear and said, Sherry, I want you to buy 300 shares of trust company stock, but you have to do it today, quick, before 4 o'clock when the market closes. And so eventually the FDIC, the Fed, uh, the SEC, he does have to make some structural changes to his business and says he fumed over having been forced to make so many changes. But these were the rules of banking and he had no choice but to comply. I don't think there was ever a time that my father truly enjoyed banking for banking's sake. He loved making himself and others happy and rich and banking was almost a necessary evil for doing that. Sometimes he would say, I should have my head examined for picking the most regulated business in the world. State regulations, federal regulations, SEC regulations. What could be more stressful? He hated taking orders from anyone. And so I mentioned earlier, he's just really hard on everybody around him, including his kids. And so then he answers the question. He's like, why are you such a hard ass to your children? And he's just got a great line here. Father, his son asked him, why do you bust my chops so mercilessly over every single decision at the bank? Because I'm not going to be around forever, Siggy replied. And if you can tolerate me over and over, then you'll be able to stand up to anyone after I'm gone. And this is the great line that he ends the advice to his son. This is fantastic. Never give up. Only death is permanent. Everything else can be fixed. And this is his record right before he finds out that he's dying. Siggy had grown his bank from $180 million in assets to more than $4 billion by the year 2000, all without mergers or acquisitions. And so he did not take care of his health. He worked all the time, wouldn't go to the doctor. 
Um, and so he's wind up staying at a staying at a friend's house. They're going to take a trip the next day. And it says these are the people that uh, that he was he had met when he was singing. <laughs> it says during the night they heard Siggy throwing up. They ran upstairs and found the bathroom covered with blood, and Siggy sprawled on the floor. They put him in their car and raced him to the hospital, where X-rays and blood work revealed that stage that he had stage four advanced multiple my, mylo, myeloma, which is an incurable blood cancer that had ravaged Siggy's body. And so he's very close to dying. He's in the hospital. And he has this saying that he said throughout his life that he's like, I'm still in Auschwitz. I'm still in Auschwitz. Like basically saying like, you can never outrun these memories. And so he's going to want to, let me just read this to you and, and you'll, you'll see like the, the unfortunately it winds up being literal. The doctor studied his declining numbers and recommended Decadrone, which attack cancer with greater potency than any other steroid. Although the drug could bring on serious side effects, amnesia, confusion, dizziness, nausea, insomnia, and hallucinations. And so Siggy's friend, the one that discovered him throwing up and, 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 and took him to the hospital as a doctor, so Siggy's doctor friend, Jerry Quint, uh, warned that resorting to Dec- Decatron carried risks. I get calls from the police, he told them. They find patients on Decatron walking down highways naked. It makes you insane. Siggy had no choice. He was deteriorating and gave doctors permission to begin the aggressive treatment. At times, under the drug's influence, Ziggy imagined he was not in a New York City hospital, but in a concentration camp. He found a pencil and drew maps of the hallways, nursing stations, and laundry chutes. He memorized routes and noted obstacles between his hospital room and the outside world. Remember, it's not a hospital room, Tim. He's in a concentration camp. Then he showed the drawings to Sherry, his daughter, who was always by his side, and whispered that this is how he planned to escape. The memories of Auschwitz were so vivid that he sensed the SS were lurking in closets and peering around the edges of corridors. When doctors wanted to put him inside an MRI scanner, he refused, saying it looked like a crematorium. So he winds up getting released from the hospital. It's not doing really well. And he, he winds up being able to survive. He wanted to make it to his son's birthday. And so his his son comes to visit Ziggy at his uh at his apartment, his condo. And he says, when he arrived at his father's apartment, he found him sitting on the dining room table. Siggy pointed with glee at the cake and candles and colored sugar swirls and snow white frosting. Happy birthday, Siggy called out weakly. His thin arms raised in delight. The nurse lit the candles and with whatever strength he could muster, Siggy sang in a slow, trembling voice. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Ivan, my dear, happy birthday to you. Gesturing as best as he could, he ended the song and pointed for his son to blow out the candles, which he did. Siggy was rushed to the hospital the next morning. He died that night. Less than a year after his death, his estate was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Not bad, as Siggy once said, for a short, bow-legged Jew with flat feet who never graduated kindergarten and started with only $240 in his pocket. And that is where I'll leave it. There's so much more in the book. Highly recommend. It was a fantastic, it was a fascinating story. Something that's very entertaining and you learn at the same time. If you buy the book using the link that's in the show notes in your podcast player, you'll be supporting the podcast at the same time. If you want to buy a gift subscription uh, for a friend or a coworker, family member, I will leave a link in the show notes to do that as well. That is 223 books down, 1,000 to go. And I'll talk to you again soon.